He's a very curious monkey. He's a silly monkey. All right, we are live. It is the last Shabbat, 5779. Shabbat Shuba. Portion uh, Shabbat is next next Shabbat, I think. Yes. Um, this is portion Nitzavim, which means uh, standing. And uh, maybe we'll actually talk about why it's not Amdim. Don't you think we should have the portion discussion standing, just to not the portion? No, but that's clever. <laughs> so says one of the younger people in the room. So, yeah, as, as I, oh, it feels so good to sit down. Um, you sit too long, the watch starts beeping at you. That's right. That's true. <laughs> they should program Siri to be like, that's a beam. Stand firmly. That's the, that's the Israeli version. Yeah, the Israeli version. Um, yes, this is Parshat Nitzavim, um, talking about standing. Uh, and it says, you are standing today, all of you. Now, what's cool about this passage is uh, the definition of all in this week's Torah portion is a bit broader than you might have expected. Um, all, they, uh, they go ahead and they, they say, you know, it's more than just the men. It's the small children and the women. Um, but then it goes on to say, the proselyte who is in the midst of your camp, uh, from the hewer of your wood to the drawer of your water, the ger in the Hebrew, the stranger who lives in the midst of you, um, and it says, from the hewer of your wood to the drawer of your water. So Rashi says, is a contrast here. He, he, he argues that the proselyte, as it translated, convert, um, is different from the hewer of your wood to the drawer of your water. The hewer of your wood and drawer of the water is the Canaanites who, like, uh, Fake converted to Judaism. They hadn't yet. Well, they say there's some. They say there were others, like the Gibeonites, that like under Joshua, some of the Gibe other Canaanites did the same thing to try to sneak their way into uh, into Israel. So they faked their way. What, the reason why I bring this up is not so much to say that I agree with that, but I like the idea only because his point, and this is reading from the uh, the uh, Ark Scroll Stone Kamash, their commentary from Rashi. Uh, he goes on to say that um, because they were not sincere about accepting Judaism, Moses did not allow them to convert. Nevertheless, he let them remain with the nation as wood hewers and water drawers. Now, what's amazing about this is that means they're not converts by Judaism definition. And yet, the next verse says, for you, referring to all the people before that, to pass into the covenant of Adonai your God and into his imprecation that Adonai your God seals with you today. In order, in order to establish you today as a people to him, that he be a God to you. So, in other words, even if you take Rashi's interpretation of there's converts and then there's like fake converts, the fake converts get included in the covenant with God. Um, and as I read this passage, I couldn't help but really think that um, of, of those in this room who have, uh, who have sought to be part of the people of God, sought to be part of the covenant of God, and that, uh, you know, read through the Apostle Paul's writing, are very much included um, Amen. They are definitely part of both of those categories. Now, we're not on the same level, so to speak. We're not the original people, and Paul makes it clear we should not boast against the natural branches, so to speak. Um, so you may be a water carrier or a wood cutter, but uh, if that's what it takes to be part of the covenant, that's where I want to be. Um, and this comes one week after a prior comment. It says, you did not have a heart to understand until today. And the Rashi commentary on that passage says that when the Ten Commandments were given, the people said, oh, this is, this is way too intense. We can't take this. 
Moses, you go talk to God and you relay it back to us. God was happy with the fear of him, the awe of him, um, but Moses was disappointed that they didn't want to hear directly from God. So in the uh, in Deuteronomy, in last week's Torah portion, Rashi's Midrash that he goes off on is that the, uh, when Moses gives the Torah to the Levites, as it says, he gives a copy of the Torah to the Levites, people of Israel come to him and they say, wait, don't give it to them. When you die, they'll say, no, the Torah is only ours. It's not for you. And we want it to be for us too. And that's when Moses, very happy, says, until today, you have not been given a heart or a, to understand. Or you know. In other words, the idea is like, now you get it. Now you want it. And again, I couldn't help but think about um, people in this room who, you know, you're not Jewish. You're not culturally part of the Torah. And depending on who you've talked to or have interacted with, you may have been told more than once not to be keeping the Torah. It's not for you. Um, but like Ruth, you're a little, you're, you're, you're stubborn. And, and you get the heart that Moses was going for in last week's Torah portion. No, I want to keep the Torah. Even if you tell me I can't, I want to anyway. Because I want to be part of that covenant. I want to be part of that relationship with God. And as we see in this week's Torah portion, Moses' um, commentary is that all of you are counted as part of that covenant. Yes, Dad. So uh, mentioning the water carriers and the woodcutters is, 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 is a unique phrase. <clears throat> that less than a year from this date that they are all standing, the Gibeonites, who are among the, those that are going to be wiped out, are residents of Shechem. They are, that's, their, that's where they're from. So they are descendants of, we would assume, or at least nominally descendants of those that, that Shimon and Levi had killed all the men, right? Mm. They're from Shechem, which is where Jacob first came back. So here they're going to, in a year from this date, they're going to stand on the mountain. The two, the two sets of descendants from Jacob stand on the mountain of Gerzim and and, uh, yeah. and Ebal, and they're going to recite the words of the Torah, which would be include these words. Mm. And it says. In that account, it says the Gibeonite or the residents of Shechem were in the valley. They heard these words being recited from the mountaintop, as it were, like an echo, an amphitheater, right? And it's from that that they then go to Joshua and go, Oh, uh, we have all along been followers of God, right? So their deception, of course. God honors the fact that they have attached themselves to Israel and it's with the condition that they serve as the water bearers and the woodcutters. Mm -hmm. So, and actually to, uh, in Yeshua's time it would have been the descendants of the Samaritans. That's where they're from. Mm -hmm. uh, Samaria was Shechem would be Samaria as well. So, attaching yourselves to these people regardless of the fact that they were deceitful or not. This was I would say that the, these Gibeonites are the equivalent of modern-day conservative evangelical Christians. That uh, they tried to steal a heritage, as it were. Uh, they weren't completely honest in their, yeah, that's us, and then, yeah, we're the only ones kind of thing. So, but they're still included. Mm. It, it gives a, a good answer 
for why these Gibeonites yeah. out of whole cloth came up with. Uh, That's well, us. No, wait, wait. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll carry the water. We'll carry the water cutters. because they knew that yeah. the covenant applies to them. Hmm. Nice. Well, and also you see, too, that the, um, you know, the people of Jericho, Rahab, right? So she's, you heard the stories. Uh, at least my, my parents told me the story of you guys parting the Red Sea. That was 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. But uh, that was pretty, pretty scary. And then the Jordan parted for you guys, so I guess you're the same people. Um, and God's still with you. And, uh, and we want to be with you. Mm-hmm. Like, we know this is going to end badly for us. <laughs> so if you're going to attack us, I want to be on your side. And, um, and Rahab is counted not only as a, um, as a, a member, of the, member of the covenant, but also but a, this, a, a, an ancestor of Messiah. So um, God is definitely bringing them in. In fact, we get, a, we get an allusion to this in some ways here. He says, um, not with you alone do I seal this covenant. This is from right. uh, Deuteronomy 29, verse 12. But, uh, but with whoever who is here standing with us today before Adonai our God and with whoever is not with us today. Which reminds me back to Yeshua's words. I think it's John chapter 10. He's yep. talking about being the shepherd. He says, I, I sheep. sheep in another fold. And then I have another sheep that aren't here today. You know, a different, a different fold that I'm going to call in. And, and John it, 17, he actually says, not just for you here, but also those who will hear you through you. Right. So this idea, Yeshua's playing off of this concept of this multi-generational and potentially multicultural or multi-ethnic. And, 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 and evangelical. Yeah, uh, yes. Um, faith that it extends, which is really important because um, Judaism, if you read uh, the, the six remembrances, there's all these things. Remember when you were at the mountain and you told, and tell your children. What's fascinating about that passage is that it's given in Deuteronomy to people who quite possibly were not at the mountain, at least a good chunk of them. Because that was 40 years ago. So those people are to act that they're at the mountain. It's like Passover, right? Remember, like, you were there? So it's kind of like the same idea here. There's this, God is outside of time, and so his relationship with his people, including those who maybe not look like his people, so to speak, that are going to be part of his people, um, he's seeing all of them, and he's bringing them all in together. Yes, sir? With the, uh, the woodcutters and the water drawers, too, I was just thinking how that is such a great response to be joining the people of Israel is saying, how can I contribute? We will serve. You know, we'll, we'll serve, exactly. We'll, we'll do whatever it takes. And I think that is a great, like, today, I don't know how much wood cutting or water that they need, but it's really about what your finances do. And there, I remember talking with Yishai Fleischer and he was just so blessed and could name off the top of his head dozens of wealthy Gentiles who recognized the importance of the land of Israel, recognized the significance of the Jewish people, and just blessed their socks off, you know? And I just think, like, that is that is a really cool demonstration of possibly what these people would have been like. Like, how can we contribute? Not just that we want your blessing and that's it, and that we don't have to right. do anything for it, right. but how can we make, how can we support Israel and support you being you? And that has changed everything, I would say, because prior to Christianity in general being uh, realized and recognizing that Israel today is is still the people of God, um, the relationship between Jews and Christians uh, could at best be described as abysmal, um, perhaps more accurately be described as almost genocidal. Um, the relationship Christians were generally trying to wipe the Jews out, not and you know, understandably the Jews were suspected as a suspect of the Christians. The relationship has changed in large part because Christians have 
um, I think, because Christians have not only embraced Israel as, no, God still loves you, but more importantly, have embraced the, the, the country of Israel to support the country of Israel and say, no, you're God's people, and that means that I am willing to put myself on the line, so to speak, politically, financially, um, time. There are volunteer organizations that are in Israel that are not there to convert Jews. They're there because they love, Jew they love the people of Israel. They want to bless the people of God. It's, it's not new for Gentiles to recognize that the people of God are, in fact, the people of God. I mean, the king of Poland. Yeah, there have been. It's but they've been, been a small number. Since, since the state of Israel became a state in 48. Everybody joined in. Yeah. I mean, everybody's oh. recognized. Well, I mean, it was, it was really, I mean, none of us in this room are old enough to have been alive before there was a state of Israel. Right. So for people older than, than you know the old ones in the room, that was a big deal. You had some Christian ministries that had to change their stance dramatically because you had prophecy that literally came to pass. And while it wasn't in, within our lifetime, it's pretty darn close. But if you think about it, it's basically exactly what happened with the Gibeonites, right? Yeah. When the Jews came, well, the Jews, when the people of Israel came back to the land of Israel, all of a sudden the Gentiles go, wait, 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 we want to be part of that. And that's essentially what I think you have here today. And it's interesting, we talked with Yishai Fleischer, there was an interesting uh, podcast he gave a couple weeks ago, and he was talking about meeting with some Christians, and he said, let's agree to agree. And this idea of, like, we have so much in common. True. Like, let's, let's stick to that. And it was so interesting because to hear it, an Orthodox Jew say that, is, is in reverse, really, of what you'd almost expect 50 years ago. I mean, now, it's almost like, it's like the, uh, this idea of, of collaboration. It's not just that, like, oh, we both study the Bible. That's kind of, but no, it's this, uh, this recognition that the Christians are the Jews' friends. Well, like, that is a really weird thing to say, historically. You and I sat on that couch. As an Orthodox Jewish rabbi, sat on that couch and looked at both of us and said we were Mishpah. And I think that a large part of that has to do with exactly what Greg is getting at, this idea of Christians not only saying... Attitude. Yeah, the attitude. The attitude of saying, no, 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 we're on your side. Not, we want you on our side. Or we're on the same side in the sense of, like, well, we're both on God's side. But more like, I want to be with you. Yeah. I'm willing to support you. I'm willing to protect you, defend you, fight for you. I mean, there are Christians who go over to the land of Israel just to go pick olives in settlements for Jews. Yeah, Yishai, Jeremy Gimpel and uh, Rabbi Gimpel and uh, Rabbi Abramovitz were had this hilarious story where they're they're out at their uh, their little center in Judea and Samaria. Um, the Asian guys show up, and the Germans show up to come help build them their synagogue, whatever it's like. That's and, ironic. And, I, and Rabbi Abramovitz is like, "Can you imagine? Here I am, a Jew. I'm sitting here watching a bunch of Germans build a synagogue for Jews in the land of Israel. Like, how did this happen?" <laughs> It's a miracle. It's a miracle. <laughs> but it is a miracle. Is. I mean, this is exactly what... And so when you think about it, one of the things Rabbi Gimpel had said that was really interesting, and it was commentary about Joshua, he's talking about this, and he doesn't believe that, the, that Rahab is an accident. Rahab's not a coincidence where they just happened to pick that house, so to speak. He said that the, the two spies who go in, they're like, they're like uh, convert heat seekers. They're going in looking for somebody that wants to join Israel. Because mm -hmm. there's this idea that the closer Mashiach is, the more the Gentiles want to be a part, and the more the Jews want to find them. 
And they, uh, so they, he gave, actually gave the example of Solomon um, saying, wasn't the right way to do it, but his marrying many women from all sorts of parts of the world <laughs> was, in, was in part this idea of like, we want to bring the nations in. And, um, and so I think, you think about what's happening today, unprecedented in terms of the relationship between Christianity, Gentile Christians, I should say, and the Jewish people. Um, it's, it's and I think, that that, I think that highlights the imminence, so to speak, of Messiah. And it's softened even with Catholics. Absolutely. I mean, even in, in recent years, uh, well, first off, back right after 48, the Catholics actually revised their position on the Jewish people, which was a huge deal. Um, but even today, yeah, the, um, the relationship is different. I would say it's quite where it should be, but it's getting... John, John Paul and, and Benedict were absolute, especially uh, Benedict, was absolutely a friend of the Jews. No question. The new one, I'm not so sure. But. I don't think anyone is too sure about that. Actually, <laughs> Catholics don't like him either, so... <laughs> Your mom's... Uh -huh. I read an op-ed piece recently about a guy who said when he was growing up that Jews understood that Christians select Israel because they wanted to get all of the Jews in Israel and then Jesus was going to come kill them all. <laughs> and well, he, said, he said, tragic. That's, what, that's what I would hear. You know, that, that was the view that the only reason Christians liked Israel was because they wanted to get the Jews there and then their Savior was going to come and, you know, all the Jews would be killed. And he said, but now, and as he's grown older, and he actually had to put a fake name up because he didn't want to be identified. Hmm. He said, but now as I've gotten older, I have learned there is a deep love. There is a deep respect for the people of Israel. It's not to get them there so that their Savior could come kill them all, but it's to get them there because they believe that God said, this is your land. Hmm. And they believe that God said, I will bless you, and I'll bless those who bless you. Amen. And he said the view of Christians is not anything like he had heard of when he was younger. And it's not even that selfish. Well, we want to hitch our wagon to your, or hitch our wagon to you because you know you got you got a future. It's more than that. It's it's actually it is a unselfish love. Yeah. Well, I'm saying it was, it was a, an appreciation for God and who God is, and what God had chosen as His people and where He had placed them. And that's it's significant that it's not a replacement. No. And the recognition is, is dramatic because it's happened in our lifetimes. Right. Forget 48. In our lifetimes, we've seen where the Christian church Absolutely. has by and large turned and said, hmm, maybe. <laughs> maybe maybe it's a joint thing, and it's not either or, but both and. Hmm. At least that's the sense that I get, and it's the sense that I try and, and certainly give to, to the Orthodox community that I deal with, is that, you know, I, I get it. I carry the water. No, no problem there. Okay, I'll chop the wood. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm stronger than the rabbis now. <laughs> Thank you, Greg. <laughs> um, it's interesting that in this passage we have all this allusion to Gentiles um, at the beginning of the passage, and it's in the same Torah portion that we talk about um, multiple allusions to Messiah. We get this um, circumcising your heart occurs later in the passage. Um, in fact, let's see if we can find that. That's in there. Chapter thirty. Chapter thirty is from Romans as well. Romans is from chapter thirty. Right. Yeah, we got that as well. I was going to go there too. Um, he's got uh, thirty eleven is the same <coughs> reading. Let's see. After you, you receive your your heart, you possess it. I oh, hear it is verse thirty, uh, verse six. Adonai your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Um, there was an interesting comment, uh, uh, commentary put out by First Prince of Zion this week 
uh, on this passage and talking about and pulling that into um, Ezekiel, the idea of writing the Torah on your heart. Um, Jeremiah 30. Yeah, Jeremiah. Um, and also, uh, obviously, too, Paul. Paul hits on that, that, that concept that he was circumcising your heart, the idea of um, the, the, you know, the, the true circumcision, so to speak. Um, the, uh, and, and this uh, concept, then, that Messiah is going to be, uh, is ultimately part of this process, right? Messiah is the one who's sort of the, the key that unlocks it, so to speak. Not to say that it wasn't occurring prior to Messiah, because God works outside of time. We already established that. But the idea, though, that Messiah is the method through which God does this, and it's interesting that in the same sense that God uses um, Messiah's work to bring forgiveness and healing and restoration to his own people, and as a result, um, bringing them into closer relationship with him through the Torah, but he also uses Messiah then to bring the Gentiles in. That earlier passage talking about conversion, um, you know, bringing them in the gear, stranger among you. Well, how do you get to be part of the people of Israel? How do you be part of the people of God? Is it just standing there? Well, no. Moses says, okay, there's people who aren't standing here be part of this, but how do they get in? Like, uh, is it physical proximity? Like, what's the what's the key? And do you have to trick people to get in? Right, I know, right? You have to like, okay, let me. If I, as long as I wear clothes that look a little older than the ones yeah, I'm wearing, my shoes are worn out too. Uh, and you know, moldy so, bread, got to have the moldy bread. Moldy bread, right? So instead, um, Paul spends goes. I mean, he like half of his letters basically are talking about this idea of how the Gentiles get in, because it was a huge problem at the in that time frame. And quite frankly, it's a big problem today. It's fascinating listening to the Land of Israel Network, the radio program. Um, Rabbi Gimpel and I think Rabbi Fleischer as well. Um, there's a they're, they're wrestling with this. They don't really know what to do exactly with Gentiles. And Yishai Fleischer kind of likes the idea of there being like the uh, the stranger category. He's like, all these, you know, all these Christians, non-Jews, they love Israel, but we won't let them stay because they're not citizens. And it's like, what, we should have like a, a subcategory. Well, you're not really citizens. You can't vote, but you can live here if you want to because you're... I mean, they just want to be with us. Like, they, they need a vision with a sheet let down from heaven. Right, yeah, exactly right. It's, but that's the point, is that in, in Paul's day, Peter's day, this was just as big, if not bigger, of a problem because it was so religiously focused. I think today the political angle makes it a little bit easier for some Jews to be supportive of Christians being among them because it's like, well, fine, you want to come live in our country and help protect our country? Great, love that idea. But with Peter and Paul, the focus was much more on the religious side. They wanted to be part of the temple system. They wanted to be part of the religious community. It was a huge ordeal. and It would, it would be a problem. It would be a problem today. And, and so for, for Peter, the, the revelation through the, the sheet, the animals on it, um, where God reminds him that what he decides is holy is the definition of holy and not what man decides, um, uh, is a breakthrough moment, not only for him, but for the whole community in, in Jerusalem. And then ultimately Paul um, really runs with it. So it's not surprising in my mind that Paul goes back to this passage a lot in talking about, um, you got the circumcision angle, but then also, Dad, you mentioned earlier um, in uh, chapter 30, verse 11, for this commandment that I command you today, it is not hidden from you, it is not distant. It is not in heaven for you to say, who can ascend to heaven for us and take it for us? so that we can listen to it and perform it. Nor is it across the sea for you to say, who can cross the other side of the sea for us and take it for us so that we can listen to it and perform it. Rather, the matter is very near to you in your mouth and your heart to perform it. And this is uh, paraphrased by Paul in Romans 10, where he, 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 he extrapolates this idea of the Torah being close to you so that you can do it um, to 
uh, to salvation through, through Yeshua is coming through the same process. So he's like, it's not in heaven that would make Messiah have to come down. Messiah fills the heavens. It's not, it's not across the sea or, or another, transla- another um, parallel imagery in, in, in biblical thought is the sea is a representation of, yeah. of death Sheol. or Sheol, Gehenna, that like, you know, kind of uh, hell, Hades concept, right? So it's not across the sea, it's just bringing Messiah back because Messiah has already c- covered that one too, right? <laughs> Raising from the dead. Um, rather, it's in your mouth and your heart. And he says, he who, he who believes in his heart the Yeshua, uh, confesses about the Yeshua's Lord and believes in his heart that God has raised from the dead, he should be saved. Amen. So he's pulling it from this passage. He's saying, so how do we express or how do we internalize Messiah? Well, it's, it's through the things that, it's the way that we speak of him and the, what, we, what we believe. Obviously, that should change other parts of your life too. That would be from well, belief, James. Belief means do. Right. That's where you're going to get to. But Paul is looking at an entry point, right? He's saying, how do you get in, so to speak? And that's Paul's focal point, talking to Gentiles in Rome. I mean, of all places, right? Rome. It's like it doesn't get a whole lot more pagan than Rome. And his point is to say, this is the, this is the door. The door is through Messiah, and it's, he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 30 to say it's through your heart and through your mouth. Once you're in, then obviously, yeah, the rest of you changes. But that's the entry point. So, you know, we talked about um, a new Torah. Uh, so I'm, I'm reading from the Gutnik, and if you got a small one, I'm on 221, 220. You have 200 pages in that ginormous thing? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, we're looking at will new parts of Torah ever be revealed by God? This is uh, basically we're looking at uh, chapter 3, verse 11. And he says, uh, Rashi, uh, uh, the Midrash says, um, and Joshua mentions this more often than anybody I know, that, you know, that we're going to make a Leviathan. We're going to kill him, and uh, yeah, we're, we're going to make him. a sukkah out of his skin, and you know all this other stuff. Bring like, him. Wait, it's wait, kosher. wait a minute. Yeah, the beast will gore the fish. Wait a minute. How could that be a kosher form of slaughter? Are, are we not taught in the Mishnah any person may slaughter? Yada 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 yada. Rav Avin Barkana says, a new Torah will emerge from me. New laws will emerge from me, says God. Yalkut Shimoni. I can't find it in English. In the future, God will sit, God will sit, and expound a new Torah, which will be given through Mashiach. Okay. So now Rambam is like, well, wait a minute, how can you have new Torah? The king who will arise from the seat of David, that's Mashiach, will be a greater genius than Shlomo, than Solomon, and a great prophet approaching the greatness of Moshe. Therefore, he will teach all humanity and show them the way of God. So, as I read the next piece, think about the master in the last, when you know, when he first was introduced to, uh, to the scene when he was 12. He's in the temple. What's he doing? Asking questions. And then later on, when he's introduced in his ministry at 30, they're like, wait, nobody ever, nobody's ever talked like this before. I mean, this guy is speaking with authority. And so on. So, the Midrash and Yalkut Shimoni describe the new Torah, quote-unquote, that is destined to be given by, by Mashiach in the future. Rambam appears to hint to this point by stating that Mashiach will be a greater genius than Shlomo and a great prophet. Therefore, he will teach all humanity. Since he will be a great prophet, therefore the new Torah will be revealed through him and he will teach all humanity. 
So how is this to be reconciled with the fundamental principle which Rambam himself writes that the Torah is not in heaven and is only the prerogative of a prophet to introduce a new part of the Torah? One time. One time. It's a one-time deal. Now here's the explanation. Our sages taught every insight that an advanced student, and other, it's not worth going through all of it. The bottom line is, I'm on the next page, it's clear that the new Torah revealed by Mashiach is in fact part of the pre-existing Torah given to Moshe at Sinai, which has no possibility of change and is not in heaven. Encoded. Even though, yeah, the ideas will be revealed by God, quote unquote, from me, are so deep and no man could possibly discover them. Nevertheless, they will be brought down into a comprehensible form. Consequently, it is stressed that a new Torah will emerge from me. That is, it will depart the heavenly realm and come into earthly terms, just like Mashiach himself, just like Yeshua himself. The route by which the new Torah will escape its heavenly garb and come into human comprehension is via Mashiach himself. Rambam stresses the that word the Mashiach, huh? The word, the word flesh. made flesh. Isn't that great? Rambam stresses that the Mashiach is both a great prophet and a greater genius than Shlomo. Therefore, he will teach all humanity. This indicates that new Torah will first be revealed to him in the form of prophecy, and then through his great genius, Mashiach will be capable of articulating these complex ideas in a way that makes them accessible to the normal human intellect, so that, quote, he will teach all humanity. I can't not hear people talking about Yeshua and being so wise and never hearing teaching like that and him confounding the, the sages in the temple in the last week of his life. Well, and even the comment about him pulling it out of the old Torah, how many times did he say, you've heard it, you've heard it said, said or it is written, it is written that. that, and then he proceeds to yeah. expound on that. So the reason why godly revelation of new legislature will not be a breach of the tenet that the Torah is not in heaven is because Mashiach, being a greater genius than Slomo, will explain the new innovations to the newly reconvened high court in Jerusalem in a rational way that meets their approval. This will then become fixed as Jewish law, since the high court judges are the bastion of oral law and the pillar of guidance. From them comes the law for the entire Jewish people. In this manner, the new Torah will become like laws learned through tradition, laws learned through the intellectual application of one of the principles of Torah exposition and it will appear in their eyes that this is indeed the case. Everybody will be happy. Messiah will be accepted, revered, and promulgated throughout the land. Universal. Yeah. That's very cool. Yeshua said, you search the scriptures. You search the Torah for life. For looking for eternal life, and they speak of you. He says, you, had Ab you have Abraham, you have Moses. You have Moses, and he speaks of me. So... The notion that, that Messiah is the embodiment of the Torah, but more importantly, even deeper, he's the, the he is encoded in the in the Torah. He's, he's encoded. The he's the essence of it. All the way through, it's like the DNA. The and, DNA of the Torah is him. And in his day, they yeah. just couldn't get sure. it. Yeah. Well, as well as in our day, we can't get well, it. Well, it's interesting you say that, because well, like, they were blind. Messiah's speaking, he's, 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 they talk about him bringing the Torah down in the, in the commentary you just yeah. read. Um, that whole idea is similar. I was just reading this week in the Haftarah, the Russian commentary to Haftarah, they're talking about this idea of um, the, the anthropomorphization of God as the warrior coming up from Edom 
Right. And they say, well, it's not really the God has you know blood all over his clothes because he's not physical. But yeah, it is. Well, but Revelation but that's their interpretation. The but there but there are but their point is to say that the, the scripture uses that because they want to speak to our ears that our ears can understand. And I couldn't help but think about how many times Yeshua says, "He who has an ear, let him hear." Mm-hmm. This idea that Yeshua is taking these deep concepts, trying to put them in ways that humans can understand. But his point being that like, but you're only going to understand if you want to understand. Otherwise, right. you're going to miss it. Yeah, God or, speaks in the language of men. Or when uh, one of the, I think it's Andrew, says, show us, show us the Father. Mm-hmm. And, and he's like, show you the Father. Well, Have you been you, so long with me? Yeah. You haven't figured this out you get it? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That, that's, a, that's a heavy concept, Shlomo, you know? <laughs> right, well, and then so also... If, if it's... I, I just think these guys are describing... What has already happened yep. once, absolutely, and will happen again, right? And only the second time, the light bulb goes on, and they recognize it. Right. And it's, it's just I'm just flabbergasted that they wrote this, not us. Yeah, I think that, that it's it reminds me too of, of Yeshua talking about I only speak the words the Father's given me, mm-hmm. and then you've also got um, I mean, there's even today there's an Orthodox guy out there who's trying to encourage the Orthodox community to relitigate the, oh, uh, yeah, the case the whole, of, of the whole Yeshua, Yeshua case, yeah. and, and arguing that he's um, not he should decided, be kosher. That he should be. That they, he's, his point, he's, he's, a, he's a believer in Yeshua, but his point is that like they um, that the original trial was a sham, and that it wasn't even really, I mean, it's not even the, the ancestors of Orthodox Judaism who made that determination that he's not Messiah. He's like, we should try this again, <laughs> because we have a better understanding and we're not motivated by jealousy and whatever else. I mean, that, those are the Sadducees. Those are the bad guys. Right. We're like, why are you listening to them? Yeah, <laughs> that's good. And the Herodians. I mean, they're pagans. <laughs> so, anyway, yes. We had this, so we had the, I like that. It's very cool. Thank you for reading that. This, this idea of uh, Messiah being kind of open into this week's portion, and it's it's so cool because this week's portion is all about repentance. It's all about restoration and end times picture of God tells them, after, when you're in the foreign lands, after the blessing and after the curse, that's when you're going to come and seek me with all your heart, with all your soul. And, um, and really, it's so fascinating that uh, you, last week, listening to Yishai Fleischer's commentary, he said that the, um, the curse, the very lengthy curse that we all read, and all the horrors, I mean, we didn't even want to talk about it. Out loud. So on, the that they on. even have Masoretic notes that say, don't read it like this, read it like this, because it's just too awful to read it in the actual Hebrew. Um, that uh, he's like, this is the Holocaust. I mean, there's, he's like, people who come to me and say, how can you believe in God after the Holocaust happened? He's like, that only reinforces my faith in God. He said it would happen, and it did. And not to, say, not to belittle it. I mean, his, his point is to say that it was, it, was, uh, it was a judgment that God had promised at the beginning. But, you say, but the thing about that today, and it's like, what does this week's portion say? After the blessing, after the curse. It's like, we got out of that part. We got out of the worst part of it. And it's so fascinating that, yeah, today, it's like there is this, it does feel like there is this explosion of revelation happening. Almost as though we're living in Deuteronomy 30 right now. After the blessing, after the curse, you're in the nations, and you say, well, I'm coming back. And And it's not just coming back spiritually, but also physically. But 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 indeed spiritually. I mean, that's the thing. We we, we even prior to the Holocaust, we have the uh, unbelievable centers of Torah knowledge around the world 
um, to where the you know there's the old saying that Jews don't keep Shabbat, Shabbat keeps the Jews. But the fact of the matter is, the people of Israel in the in the diaspora for two thousand years got to a place of a deeper heart for God, really, than they even had prior when they were in the land of Israel, when it was easier to keep the Torah. True. So, they, they, I mean, if you think about what we what we know of today as quote unquote Orthodox Judaism, is probably what 80% created in the diaspora. That's it right. is after the exile more than that, yeah. that all of the, uh, the that the the Talmud is written down and that ultimately all of the uh, the great great legendary teachers that we mostly study today like Rashi um, that they emerge. So if you think about like out of those nations God said you will seek after me and you will find me when you seek for me with all your heart. They did that. Yeah. Almost everything prior to the destruction of the temple is is not what affects our lives and what we study. Yeah, I mean, with the exception, of, yeah, exception of Hillel and a handful of other sages, there's not much that we're getting. We, we read the prophets, then we've got a silent period, and we've got a little bit of that stuff, and then now you read the Talmud and you're already past that. Right. Um, this portion ends uh, with the whole choose life thing, um, which in the uh, Monroe uh, deal here uh, that uh, the Bartos is in that Spurlocks went to the banquet last Tuesday night. Um, just the whole anti-abortion, choose life for uh, you know, Monroe help. It's just, uh, it's extraordinary. If you read through their website and look at that, I encourage you to do that. And if you're listening online, you should do that. H-E-L-P. Help. Helping every little person is their acronym. The, uh, the, whole, the whole thing of choose life, though, uh, when I read that, aside from not killing our own, um, I, I thought about how uh, a lot of us on uh, Arab Shabbat, Morgan sends out a, a little Torah question, you know, a halakhic question, you know, kind of sets off our, our dinner time and we're discussing and so forth. And I, I think the underwriting theme for all of those uh, with regard to any kind of halakhic Shabbat issue um, is all about life, right? It's the only thing that really trumps Shabbat is life. We're to live by the Torah. So that, that re- well, that's where that concept comes from. Sure. That resounding theme kind of came together for me at the end of this here. Uh, choose life and live by the Torah. Mm-hmm. And don't, we're not to die by the Torah, we're, we're to live right. by the Torah. And it is life itself. And, you know, I, I'm looking back now with, uh, with a pretty big family. And, and I'm really happy that we made this right turn 15, 20 years ago now, I guess it is, um, and chose to live by the Torah rather than just following closely I, I don't want to belittle it or anything, but we, we chose to to grab onto the Torah uh, and and that tree of life and, and make it a, a, a tangible, visible, physical part of our day-to-day walk. And it changed my kids, it changed my wife, it changed me. And, and I think it's changed people around us. Well, in the, in the Torah, one of the things Eichon Fleischer was talking about this week's portion is it says that um, place life and death before you, as you mentioned a couple times there, Torah itself is life. 
Like, it's not the sense that, like, if you obey the Torah, things will go well for you as though, like, there's some sort of karma concept here. It might. It might. And, 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 and it and, might not. And it might not, but maybe predominantly it will, um, I would say. And, and certainly there is a reward either way, this life or the next, for death. That's definitive. But um, the Torah itself is life. Like, you want to experience life, you live out the Torah. That's actually the real life is right there. It's experiencing God. It's experiencing the good things that he's told us to do. Um, and then we just, we were, when uh, Judah, my younger brother, was lifting up the Torah earlier with the Torah service, and we were saying, you know, it's a tree of life for those who grasp it. It's right, or wealth and honor, uh, and, you know, it's left is, uh, or it's right, right is long life, and the left is wealth and honor. Anyway, point is that if you think about those types of things, the blessings, so to speak, they're like almost built in, right? I mean, if you keep the Torah, the Torah is going to keep you. You're going to be, you're going to be healthier. You're going to live ethically, which is going to, and with integrity, which is certainly going to inspire other people around you to trust you, which is very important in business. You're going to have a good work ethic, so you're probably going to be more successful than a lot of other people around you because you're going to be acting not only because the boss is watching, but also when God is watching, which is all the time. Um, you're going to be, um, you're going to be generous, which uh, well, one of the things that's really cool from um, oh, Rabbi Lapin, he talks about this idea that generosity is not only the sense that like God rewards that, but like it's like when you are generous, it's your money. relationship to money is such that you're more likely to be wealthy, right. because if your relationship is not so much like hoarding and I have to keep it to myself, that then you're more willing to invest, you're more willing to like take risks, you're more willing to do the things it takes to become wealthy. You're going to be constantly weighing the right and the wrong in your mind without, without ever taking a break from it. You're constantly be weighing choices, whereas many people just go through life having things circumstantially thrust upon them. Right. And think about even like uh, uh, I think even like happiness and so forth too. It's like we live in an era of Prozac. I mean, the the current the current society um, depends almost on antidepressants. Or on alcohol, or nicotine, or or, or or sexuality, something to make life bearable. TV, even some kind of drug, because life is just too hard. We we get up, we, we we fulfill the curses of the Torah. We get up on Monday and say, "Oh, I wish it was Sunday," and we go to work on Friday and say, "Thank goodness, it's almost Saturday." And it's like we just live our whole lives constantly being depressed. And it's like, but the Torah is promising life. If you don't, if you're not, if you're not dealing with bitterness. You're not dealing with immorality, and you're not dealing with gluttony and drunkenness and all of the types of things that create atmospheres that lead to depression. If you live a life of balance and harmony with God and the world around you, then surprise, you're you're living a happier life. So even if the even if the Torah didn't promise you a reward, like if God did not supernaturally intervene, and you know, as Greg said, bless the socks off of you know the the followers of God. <laughs> Just keeping the Torah by itself would be life. Amen. Yes, Judah. It's great you said it because studying uh, philosophy currently at Central Piedmont Community College has been a fascinating endeavor because it's reinstilled my own faith and the gratefulness I have <laughs> for black and white yes or no commandments. Do not do this. You should do this because philosophy is all, oh, well, how do you feel about it? Right. How do other people feel about it? <laughs> I don't care. I want to know how God feels about it. Right. So it, it's been it's been uh, very affirming, and it, it's it, it, trying to defend my faith from a secular point of view, saying 
you know, somebody asks me in the class even, it's like, uh, you know, I have my, uh, my necklace, people ask about it. They're like, oh, are you, are you a Christian? It's like, sure, yeah, you can go with that. And they say, uh, well, why do, you, why do you abstain? You know, why, why do you practice abstinence? Like, well, God said so. And also, from uh, your point of view, it could be better for your own personal balance. You know, it's probably not good for you to be out and about in that way. You know, it might, might, might help your soul a little bit. And they're like, really? I don't think so. Thanks, I don't for, know making about that. That. Thanks for making that kid friendly. Like <laughs> yeah. But I mean, think about, uh, but yeah, I mean, but to your point though, Judy, you're absolutely right. It's, it's, it's mentally and emotionally and physically healthier. I mean, think about um, not just that one element, but the Torah in general, the whole, the fact of having the Torah. I mean, I think it's awesome that, um, uh, that my kids, because we have sets of rules and we have a, a home of structure where there's right and there's wrong, but there's all the freedom in the middle of it. So I can literally go upstairs and grab a hat or something and leave my, my two-year-old in the, in the playroom downstairs because I know he's not gonna think he's not supposed to do because he knows the rules and keeps them very well. And I, I mean, this is not bringing up within, very long. Within, within, reason. within reason. I know, but the point to say is that I trust him and that trust begets more trust and the relationship gets deeper and the opportunities that he has get deeper. Last night, Juliana, to her credit, she was, uh, she was making dinner, and so she gave Richard a little butter knife, let him start cutting mushrooms. You know, they're soft enough that he can actually saw into them with a very dull butter knife. Um, and the point being that, like, well, how do you do that? You do that because you can trust it. And so, like, I, I firmly believe that, that my children are happier because we have rules and we have structure, and they know where the boundaries are. And I think that's true of humans in general, um, that when we have a system around us, it tells us this is okay, this is not okay, and you're not, as Judah was saying, you're not constantly having to, to ask and guess, well, I feel like this is okay. Well, but my neighbor says it was not okay. It was okay a few years ago. Why isn't it okay now? I know, right? I it's just like a meal. It doesn't feel okay. <laughs> there's a lot of those going around in it these days. Um, but it's even like the Me Too movement. I mean, the, the, there was a commentary. I, I feel like you're just thinking about like, the men, secular men, have to be, their head has to be spinning right now. It's like, wait a minute. Five years ago, our relationship with women was a lot different than it is now, and I have no idea where the boundaries are, and there are no rules. And it's like, well, they're actually, they're very, very good, clear we rules. We kept the rules all along. You should have been listening if to you, that. Yeah, that's right. If you kept the rules all along, the real rules, God's rules, then this wouldn't even be an issue. And that, that's, the general, that's the general world we're living in. It's like, of people. Now, like I said, I think there's no, not a surprise that people are depressed in an age of non-absolutism. I, I think my mom and then, and then Morgan. Well, you mentioned James, and I think... James, the way you said it, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, your perfect law of liberty, and continues in it, it's not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one is blessed in all that he does. Yeah, absolutely. Liberty, right. Morgan. Um, I, I love the idea of boundaries with the kids, and um, as we raise our children in this faith, it's so clear in the Torah, in which we read to them, we see it straight from God, what we and it's, it's a very clear box in the Torah. There's things we can watch, can't watch, can eat, can't eat. Like right. It's, it's right, it's spelled out simple enough. But um, I feel like from the, from the side of it, making them happier, that's like very much the case. Because just with our faith, they're first to learn so early on, others may, but we cannot. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes uh, with people, uh, if your child has a food allergy, they have to learn that. Right. They have to see everyone else is eating this, but you can't. Well, 
that's the chance to teach them. Most kids don't learn that. So when there's no boundaries, it's just an open field. I see that, I want it, I see that, I want it. I want it to eat this, I want that, I need that. And you know, without a clear line, it's, it, it, it sets up for a minute, it sets up for tantrums and... Disappointments. Yes, it's awful. But ours learned so early that there are things we can't eat and we need to check first and see, you know, is that kosher? And, you know, and lots of times it's a no. I'm sorry, but we can't have that. I, I I think there's also a consistency in your home, not unlike the other homes represented here, that you're not just arbitrarily making up rules for your kids and saying you can't eat that or you can't have that or you can't do that. You're under the exact same rules that they're under. So they're not just hearing that they shouldn't or that they can't. They're watching you and the self-control to limit your own freedom according to God's law at the same time. Yeah, parents usually I go, think, okay, but only this one time. Yeah, right? right? So, so you, yeah. you've got a double whammy. Only when, you, when, you're, when you're crying and yeah. I want you to stop. You've right. got a double whammy going for them that the, the goose and the gander are the same and they can True. see, I know I can do this because I watch my dad do it. I, I, I know I can refrain. I can restrain myself because my mother restrains herself. I think that's unbelievably and with, powerful absolutely. with joy as well exactly like uh, I, like I not loved, a uh, yeah um, rabbi the former lord rabbi Jonathan Sachs <laughs> yes <laughs> I remember his name for a minute he had the English a great, dude yeah he had a great series about parenting and he always tells that story about like two rabbis who were equally religious halakhically but one had his children stray and the other didn't they kept the faith multi-generationally. And the only difference was at the Shabbat table, one of them would just expound for hours on like this, these deep thoughts and just lecture. And the other one would just sing and had a great time with it and demonstrated his faith through joy and happiness. And so that's exactly to your point, as well as making sure that what they see us do is we're doing it out of joy and love for Hashem, Amen. not that it's burdensome at all. Oh, boy, I really wish I could eat that. And it's like, no, I'm happy I can't. I got, yeah, exactly. Well, and I think to, to a point, it's, just, it's not a matter of just what you can't do. And I think that we get caught up sometimes with the Torah. We have like the thou shalt nots. But what we have to realize is that thou shalt nots are oftentimes opening up doors to what we can do. And the best example to give is Shabbat. Um, there is a there are so many seculars out there right now that are saying you need to have a day of rest. You have got to stop at some point. If you go not it's seven days a week, fifty two weeks out of the year, you're going to drive yourself into the ground. You have to stop. You have to take a break. And the Torah says it doesn't leave it up to you. There's one day every week, same day. Not enough. Every single Thursday night. Or a Friday night. So Thursday night, we remind Richard that it is Shabbat the next night. When Daddy comes home, it's going to be Shabbat. It's going to be great. But every single Friday night, he gets to say, Daddy's not working tomorrow. <laughs> and there's no time where we go, well, this time. No. Daddy's never working tomorrow. That's awesome. And, and, but it's also, it's, it creates a structure and a format that, that it's safe. And... And so it's funny how, like, yeah, it's a rule that I have to keep, and it sometimes it can feel hard, especially when it's busy. Um, but then it becomes like this refuge from the busyness. Amen. I can't violate that. So it's like it doesn't matter what the rest of the circumstances are. This is my safe place. 
Sunday might end up being a lot busier than normal, but Saturday has to always stay a day of rest. I love so. the, uh, the parallel, too, with life about like Yeshua saying that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Because it's like, the, the whole idea, you, know, you, you see, you would talk about depression and everything. There's, there's also depressed Orthodox Jews who are religiously following the Shulchan Aruch and still struggling to find that joy. Mm. You know, I mean, Chabad's kind of unique in that, that they're always you know, infusing joy in it. But I think when you see the fullest expression of what it looks like to choose life in Yeshua, and then he's talking about how, now just do what I do. Like that, it just puts it in a whole new level. Well, and also, too, the relationship. The thing Yeshua says in John 17, he says that um, this is eternal life. They may know you, the only true God and Messiah Yeshua whom we've sent. This idea that, like, um, it's not just a matter of keeping the rules, but it's rules in the context of relationship with God. Um, one of the things, too, in this passage, Yishai Fleischer points out that I think is great. He says, choose life. You have a choice. And I think that's something that we live in a world today of victimization, where huge chunks of this country believe they, have, they don't have a choice in certain areas. Oh, well, I mean, I would quit smoking, but I just don't have a choice. I need a, I need a drug to help me. I, I would, you know, uh, uh, you know, not commit immorality, but I just don't have a choice. You know, it's just it's in my heart, and I can't help it. You know, or I would, um, uh, I, I would, I would, uh, you know, control my temper, but I don't have a choice. I just, this is who I am, you know. Even to the point now where we've got people who are bragging about it on the internet. Oh, I am who I am, you know. Yeah, I'm lousy, but that's who I am. And it's like, the, the Torah offers a different option. It doesn't say, um, with the right, you know, drugs, you can keep the Torah. We just read earlier, it's, it's next to you, it's near you, it's in your mouth, it's in your heart. You can do it. Choose life because you can choose it. There is nothing. There is nothing um, impossible to overcome. As as guy says in First Corinthians for Paul, he says the idea that um, uh, there's always a way of escape. That God doesn't give you more than you can handle, so to speak, from a spiritual perspective. In other words, it, God's never going to, as it says in James, God does not tempt man. God's not trying to get you to fail. He didn't rig it so that you're stuck. He always gives you a way out. And your your will, human will, is able to, with God's help ultimately, but, but in, from your perspective as a human being, with, in, in the, in the um, cosmically small universe that we live in, um, you have the ability to choose to do what's right. No matter what you did yesterday, no matter how long you've been doing it that way, or what your addictions are, or what your struggles are, or your weak spots, or how tired you are, you always can choose life. And I think that is so powerful, especially in an, in an age of so much of, of, of neediness and, and victimization and, um, and, and despair, where people are constantly being, um, being told, you can't. You need help with this. You need something else with this. You can't deal with, uh, with the way that you think about yourself. You need a drug to help you get through it. You can't, you can't handle this attitude. You have to be part of a program in order to, to work it out of you, or you just give in and say, that's just who I am. But the Bible is saying, the Torah is saying, no, no, with God's help, you can choose to live differently. Yes, sir? Uh, to add on to that, most of these words are, are plural. The use are plural in this passage, which would indicate that 
as we all know, the Torah is meant to be lived in a community. It was given to a people, not to a person. And so sometimes the people that are going through difficulties, addictions, or whatever else, God will help you, but sometimes God brings people into your lives that will help as well. So you need to understand that the community to what the community is is necessary oftentimes to support one another in uh, overcoming uh, the worldly attractions that we may face. Absolutely, and that's that's kind of Paul's point in First Corinthians in talking about the the weak brother, so to right. speak. It's like you have a responsibility to one another to protect one another. Um, we talked about this I think two weeks ago, and like even in terms of like dress code, you know, being careful not to lead your brothers or sisters astray by the way that you look because um, that's a weak spot, especially for a lot, of, a lot of people. The benefit is actually seen in the negative as well. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 points out the fact that by withdrawing from the person that won't repent, you actually are going to gonna make the point how right. much they need you right. and they will repent, which is a remarkable thought when you think about it. It's like, wow, person, you know, well, I'll just accept you in all your sin or whatever else, you know, accepting is one thing, but the sin is not. Right. You're actually hurting the person. You're not helping. So you can, yeah, and the community becomes the draw, so to speak. You want them to be... More than a draw. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it, it's fulfilling a supernatural need. You may not recognize it, but it is. Right. And right. that's, I mean, I would go so far as to say that's why a lot of immorality today has spun up entire communities around right. it. They need that to keep going to justify their actions. Right. Because outside of a community like that, you you would most likely end up coming to some sort of repentance or or maybe finding your way back to Hashem. But it's that like bad bad company corrupts good morals idea, right? Where it, if you're if you don't have a a community, a strong community, even if it's around something immoral, then it's you're going to end up being drawn back to what you came from. Before. We're, we're given an emblematic picture of it in the curses as well. I mean, God says, "Okay, if that's the way you want to be, you know, go ahead. And I'm going to scatter you to the nations. You know, you're going to know cold, and you're going to know loneliness." And it says, "While you're in the midst of the cold and loneliness, like like the prodigal son, it's like remembering that there was a place where I was warm and that I was well fed." And in the community, remembering that there was a place where I was accepted, that I felt loved by others or whatever else, community actually is God's, God's way of bringing people back to repentance. The withdrawal of community serves that purpose as well. As well. And that and that's the, it reminds me of, um, from the repentance, it reminds me of the, the sage's comment you see here, great is repentance. is repentance. The power of repentance is, is the greatest, is beyond, I think, human rationality. Because um, one of the things Ishai Fleischer was talking about this week, he talks about the, the you know, if, if your person is at the far reaches of the earth, God's going to bring him back. This is talking about the exile, right? And Ishai Fleischer was adding a spiritual component to that and saying, like, even when you are so far lost, you've gone so far away from the Torah, from God's standards, you can still come back. That God can bring you back into a relationship with him, that God can heal you. In fact, the, the passages here, if you're reading through it, it says... It goes back to start talking about, and when you return and like circumcise your heart and so forth, it says you will be blessed in your blessed in your field, blessed in your room, blessed your animals. It's the blessing. We're going back two chapters to the blessings that God had promised at the beginning of the whole thing before they sinned. When He said, "Well, if you obey Me, then you get all these blessings." Well, now He's saying, after all the mistakes that they've made, if you come back, you get all the blessings again. This idea of restoration of being able to erase the past 
more than erase it. Receive back the years that the locust have eaten. Right, to, to replace the past, to have the ability to, to be, um, it doesn't mean you don't have consequences. It doesn't mean that you don't have memories and lost time and all those types of things. That's definitely true. But the, the capacity to get to a place of wholeness. Better than before. That is even better than before. Is is a supernatural, you should have saying, it's a gift. Amen. God has given us the gift of repentance. And as we get into um, Rosh Hashanah coming up on, on Monday, the season of repentance that we've been in for a little, we've been every day, uh, if you've been doing it, we've been blowing the shofar. Every day we, we blow the shofar, uh, except on Shabbat. Um, and so in our, in our, and tomorrow, of course, because tomorrow is the day before Rosh Hashanah, I want to set it apart. Remember, Rosh Hashanah is the shofar day. Um, <laughs> but we've been blowing the Shabbat, uh, shofar at our house, and Richard, he picked up on it so fast. He's like, we blow it, and he's like, he's like, the king is in the field. It's like, right, that's what we say. And then he followed up, like, time to repent. It's like, right, that's what we got to do right now. Um, so, like, this has been the, the buildup, right? We've been, we've been talking about repentance because on, on Monday, we get a chance to um, start our, 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 our um, deposition, if you will. We're going to stand before the judge of all the earth and we're going to ask for his forgiveness. And it's going to culminate in Yom Kippur. But on, on Monday, we, one of the great traditions that we like to do, everyone here at the park, is throwing the stones in the water, the tashlik service. This <coughs> idea that uh, comes from the, was it Psalms? This is, or yeah, is it Micah. Right Micah, thank you. Micah That um, he will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. And you don't see it anymore. It's gone. You will remember them. They're gone. They're erased. And, um, and that opportunity for forgiveness, not just in the sense of like, well, now I don't have to burn in hell, which I think is what forgiveness is oftentimes translated as. But forgiveness in the sense that relationship with God is restored. Forgiveness in the sense that he chooses to not remember the things you did wrong anymore. It's an incredible offer that he's making to us. And all we have to do is, as we said or in this passage, is choose life. Yes, Gregory? On that theme, the uh, little sparks of Hasidus in the Gune uh, Humash here, the Baal Haturim writes that the first letters of the words ve'et levav et levavcha, it, it spells Elul. Right. And so that is the month pointing to, yeah, that is the month that we're in right now. And so they were saying how that kind of points to Teshuvah. And there's this neat way that it plays off because in Hasidic thought, like Elul is meant to represent love as well. And so it's kind of this idea of like, first it's the teshuva, and then it's kind of, that is the act of love. Mm -hmm. And so it says, God, your God will circumcise your heart, because then right afterwards it says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And so it's, they're, they're kind of woven together in a, a cool way. So it's neat during this month to think about that. I am my beloved and my beloved is you. Right. Mm. Also yeah. a cool. She has a ring that says a little on it. Right. Yeah, Lul also yeah. is the acronym for that 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 passage as well. Um, and this idea of um, this idea of restoration, this idea of repentance that we're that we're in the midst of, um, yeah, it's it's that it's that reset. It's that time to come back to God. It's time for us to be searching ourselves the time to go and, and fix the problems you have with other people um, uh, and to and to bring healing. I mean, when, when Yeshua gave his parable of the prodigal son, um, as we were talking earlier, he wasn't creating something new. 
wasn't a concept that Yeshua came up with on his own. Like, oh, well, you know, if you if you turn around and come back, God, you know, God's gonna love you uh, and 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 welcome you back. The story of the prodigal son also is not hyperbole. I think it can be easy sometimes to read that, especially if you've done things which you really regret. You can look at that passage and feel like, well, that's just to make me feel like it's worth it. But God doesn't really accept me like the father does in the prodigal son, where he treats him like his son. That, we we, we want to come back and like the son and be like, well, take me back as a servant. At least that's something. Better than eating pig slop. But Yeshua's parable is, is meant to be a, a true-to-life example. It's meant to be that when the prodigal son returns, when the, when the, when the repentant sinner comes back, God welcomes him Amen. in fullness. It's not, it's not it halfway. It out to grieve. Right. Take, take, ring off my finger. Give him clean clothes. Let's throw a party. It's not, a, uh, it's, not, it's not one of those things where God's like, well, at least you're home. Um, their relationship is restored. And like we're talking about in this passage, um, God brings it back in fullness. And I think, even think of it earlier, we're talking about the land of Israel. And the land of Israel is literally experiencing this today. Desert is blooming. There, is, there are advancements and success and, and, and things happening. Israel is like one of like the most advanced countries in the world for dairy products. I mean, you know, who expected that? Um, we, we read this, uh, the passage, this idea that they will no longer be called desolate. There'd be a stranger coming in from another place saying, man, this is a lousy part of the world. Mark Twain actually did that 150 years ago. He went to Israel and said, why is it, what's the big deal? The desert with a couple of camels and some, you know, nomads. Who cares? Not even any trees. Mm -hmm. And today, literally, they've planted over a million trees in the land of Israel. They have, they have wineries that make wine that from all over the world because their different soil and temperatures and things allow them to do that. I was in Paris and one of the largest wine selections in, in Paris in, in the grocery store Israeli. was Israeli. Huge Israeli. It, all in Hebrew. The Israelis have exported uh, vegetables and flowers to Europe. To Europe! Mm. I mean, like, you know. We hate you, but thank you, Rose. The breadbasket, so to speak, of the Western world in a lot of ways. And it's like, um, Israel is has been has has the land itself has healed as the people of god have returned and as god himself this is one of the things they talk about like i will i will um i will bring you the sages rashi's commentary says is a problem with the hebrew it's not it really reads more like i will come with you hmm. or i will i will come the way that the, the way that the, being in the exile in the exile with you so, like, Yishai Fleischer mentioned this, too, on his podcast, this idea of God is literally coming back to the land of Israel. For 2,000 years, the presence of God was not there. And God is literally back in, in the Holy Land. So I think that that's this idea of, um, of, uh, of restoration is something that he has promised us that comes with repentance. Hey, Mom, did you have a comment? There's several places in Isaiah and Ezekiel where he says... You've sinned, you've done this, I'm punishing you, but I love you, and I will draw you back, and I will call you, cause you over and over. But um, in Isaiah 30, 18, he says, Therefore the Lord will wait, that he may be gracious to you, and therefore he will be exalted, that he have mercy on you. 
The Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. For the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem, and you shall weep no more. He will be very gracious to you. It's time to you cry when he hears it. He will answer you. And I think that's repeated over and over throughout many of the prophets, is because of the love I have for you. I will restore you, not just let you come back to land, but I will restore everything mm -hmm. as the years of the locusts, that I will cause you to grow, I will cause your descendants to grow, I will cause your land to grow. So it, it's not only the joy factor in it, but there is the love factor that comes in, that he says, because I have loved you. Right, and he says in this passage, I will rejoice over you again, like you know, like, like the first. And um, we, uh, my wedding, I came in as the bride, my bridegroom march was to Odishama, mm -hmm. which is this uh, Jewish song that's quoting from the prophets, talking about we'll hear the voice of the bride and the bridegroom again in Jerusalem. In the streets of Jerusalem. I mean, in the day, it's amazing, you know, watching kids running around, people uh, taking their wedding photos at, you know, the Western Wall or in the gardens of Jerusalem, and it's like, this is literally happening, again, do that word again, this is happening today. <laughs> it's actually happening today. It's not a, it's not a concept, it's not a prophecy that we can imagine. I mean, it's like, up until 1948, people had to spiritualize basically the entire half of the Tanakh. Because it couldn't happen. Now all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute. These people are actually here. They're actually doing it. I mean, the passage we read today, it says they will call your land, it says inhabited in some, in some English translations. One, my, my stone kamash says settled. Do you know one of the largest and most well-known groups of people in all the land of Israel are called? Settlers. And oddly enough, they're, you know, they're, living, they're living in the biblical, the most biblical parts of the country. Um, so it's like if you think about um, if you think about it, it's like it's it is happening in our eyes. We are watching it happen, literally, and the the the, 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 the and and the brilliance of it and watching it and, and seeing it occur is, is is I think should only reinforce us. We're talking about this era of repentance. It's like this is not these are not idle words. When God promises that He will restore His people when they come back to Him, He means it and He does it. And that's true for not only the people of Israel, but also for us individually. Yes, sir. In chapter 30, verse 1, it talks about blessing and the curse is what's going to bring you back. And so the classic question here how was talking about, what, well, how could the blessing? It's, it's more like, why would God's blessing lead a person to return to him? Right? Like, the, the curses, we see that all the time yeah. in the prophets, that when bad stuff happens, then people start crying out Sorry. for Hashem. But... The idea of the blessing is that the Or HaChaim points out that it's the blessing that makes the sin feel so much worse mm. than it would have if you didn't have the blessing. If it was just bad all the time and your sin just resulted in bad, you would just think that that's just how things were. But right. when you see the blessing and the blessing gets put next to the curse like that, right. it just amplifies that much more how important it is not to yeah. participate in sin, not to sin. And so I, I think about that, like how many blessings that Israel has received. And, uh, and I, I mean, I even think about that for myself too, that sometimes that's, it's like when a blessing happens, when I feel the most like introspective, <laughs> like thinking like, You're I definitely didn't deserve this at all. Like what, what I, and you know, and so I just think that's, that's neat how God uses both. It's both punishment and Absolutely. the blessings. Right to bring us back to himself. Right, that's what Paul says, the mercy of God brings us to repentance. This idea is not 
Um, in fact, it comes from the Psalms as well. The, 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 uh, David says, because there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. In other words, if, if it was just like, well, you blew it, and it's like it doesn't matter anymore, yeah. then there would be no, like, I mean, it's almost like uh, you kind of, you, you can understand then the, uh, the, the, the foolish um, the foolish fellow in the story of the talents, right? He's like, well, I could have worked and done what you want me to do, but you reap or you don't sow. It's not worth it to serve you. So I buried it in the ground because you're a, you're a scary dude. So this is my translation. I, I don't want to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to put in the extra effort knowing I'm just going to get punished anyway. So, but to your point is that God's goodness, his mercy and his blessings end up, end up making it like, no way, I, I want to access those. I want to be right. part of those. Uh, what made me think of that too was the, the story of the prodigal son because it wasn't just mercy that the dad gave. Mm-hmm. To your point, he went over the top with blessing him right. with, with the nicest things and, right. and the goodness of everything. You'd think that he's ever going to sin again after that, you know? And uh, I just think that's it's an amazing illustration of that. It wasn't just like, a all right, fine, we'll get punished. It wasn't just mercy. It was actually blessing as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, this is good. Any final comments? Oh, yes, sir. Yeah, there was a, uh, we listened to the FFOZ uh, commentary before we uh, you know, came over this morning. And, um, Daniel Lancaster made the point that here at the end of the Torah, uh, it's taking us back full circle, back to the garden. Okay. Because the what God put in front of Adam and Hatha was a choice. Right, between right. Life and death. Right. You, you can eat from all these trees, except for this one. If you choose to eat from this one, then on that, you're going to introduce death. Right. And so they had in front of them life and death to choose right. from. Right. And they made the unfortunate decision of choosing the path of death. But then, at the same time, God provided a way of restoring through Messiah mm-hmm. us back into fellowship with him once again. So it's neat how it started out with the choice of life and death. And at the end of the Torah, where Moses is reminding us, follow the Torah, choose life. Or you've got another path, another choice you can make, and you can choose death. Right, exactly. Consequences. That's absolutely right. And you think about it, it's like even the language is the same, right? In the, in the garden, they had the tree of life, and that's exactly what the Torah is called. It is a tree of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and uh, Rabbi Foreman uh, uh, talks about the, the tabernacle representing the picture of, of the garden and the imagery of the angels and, the, and certain other elements that kind of take us back to that garden-like experience, this effort to get bring, bring the people out back to that harmony with God we had then. Um, and I like your concept. You said something there that got me thinking I hadn't thought of this before. Um, he says you can eat from all the trees of the garden um, except this one. In a way, it says what God's saying is, you can eat from all the trees of the garden, or you can eat from this one. <laughs> and I think that's that's what we were talking about earlier, the blessings of God, right, and, the, and, the, and choosing life. It's like God is offering us everything, everything, all you could ever want, or you can do it your way. <laughs> and and I think that I think that's so true. Even like I think like with children, like we're trying to raise them, we're trying to teach them that like you can do it your way, and it's going to be sad. And it's not. It's going to be incomplete, or you can you can obey, and it's going to open the doors to a whole range of things that will make you happier and healthier and more successful, and um, and make you and bless you. And and really, God is God is making the same offer to us. I mean, the the passage here it says choose life, 
choose, it says, uh, choose the, um, how does he phrase, how does he phrase it? He says, um, I place before you today the life and the good and the death and the evil. And the Rashi commentary says that the good is the Torah and it results in life. And the evil is sin and it results in death. And I can't help but think about um, Paul giving the same, the same imagery, you know, being, being servants of, of good or, or, or of sin, but then also talking about like the wages of sin is death. It's like, this is what you get. You do this, you get this. And, um, and so if we think about all of that repentance, it's not just about God restoring us, it was a chance for us to get back on the right path. It's a chance for us to get back to doing the things that result in blessing. And, um, and if we don't hear that call, the one thing Chef Fleischer points out is the word today is, is repeated in this passage. Today is a pretty important word. It's, it's in Hebrew, it's the same thing. Today goes from Psalms, if you'll but hear his voice. It's like, today is the day of repentance. Today is the day of salvation. Um, and if we, if, we, if we listen to him and make that choice, not only can it erase the past to bring us back to him, but it'll also unlock those blessings moving forward. Final thoughts? Dad, would you close us in prayer? Father, we thank you that you are a good and gracious God and that you have not left us to our own devices, but you've given us clear instruction. Father, we thank you for the promises that you have made to us. And Father, we thank you for the, uh, the choice of life that you have given us. Father, we thank you that you have indeed taught us that repentance is great and that your love and your compassion and your forgiveness are something that we should uh, seek holy. Father, we ask that we might all return in repentance to you. We pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen.